Hi there, I'm James Madison, and welcome to a podcast from the Open Data Institute, looking at how organizations engage with a wide community of open data users and promote best practice. As part of the ODI's partnership with Microsoft, we brought together a network of organizations to share knowledge, discuss challenges, and learn from each other in how they steward open data, data that anyone can access, use, and share. Recently, we held a roundtable discussion around making data accessible to a wide community of users. And over the next 40 minutes, we're going to look back at this, explore the role our partner organizations play as a steward of open data, and the challenges they face in supporting their own communities of data users. Joining me to talk more on the topic is Lorene Van Breen from Wikirate, Keisha Buanga from the Open Contracting Partnership, and Tim Robertson from GBIF, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. It promises to be a really interesting discussion. Let's get started. So we've got a lot to talk through and a fabulous panel to help talk through the challenges of engaging a community in open data use and how we can make best available use of data to a wide range of users. Just to refresh, we all met recently at a roundtable discussion looking at making data more accessible, and I want to look back on some of those discussions. Firstly, I'd like to look at what types of organizations use the data that you steward. Lorene, can we start with you on that question? Absolutely. Thanks, James. So we work with company data. So Wikirate is an organization that compiles data about companies that is already available in the public domain. And we specifically look at their social, environmental and governance performance. So this ESG data space, traditionally you'll see stakeholders like companies, investors or expert organization groups like benchmarkers or experts in this field within academia, for instance. But what we're doing is not only involving these kinds of traditional stakeholders, but we're also opening it up to the non-traditional stakeholders of this space. So we say the data is useful for groups beside these traditional stakeholders. For instance, think about civil society or unionists or students. They don't have the money to pay uh, to extract this kind of information from the bigger portals that exist and that are often used by investors, but they actually do have a use for the data that we have. They would like to know what the impacts are of companies. We're all company stakeholders after all. And then these underrepresented stakeholders of the space actually have their own indirect audiences as well. So think, for instance, of supply chain workers who are receiving information all of a sudden about supply chain policies of big brands. And think of policymakers who can now find out whether a certain law they have implemented is working well or whether it needs adapting and whether companies are reporting correctly to certain legislation. So we're really broadening the space. Great. Thank you so much. Keisha, could we come to you next? Yes, thank you so much, James. Similar to what Lauren said, we have a really broad, diverse community that's working across sectors. So I'm here from the Open Contracting Partnership, and we work with procurement data and open procurement data. And it is the single largest item of spending by most governments. One in every $3 spent by the government is on a contract with a company. We like to say it's the world's largest marketplace. It's about $13 trillion of spending every year. So as you can imagine, that creates a lot of data that is important for a lot of different people and has huge implications for public goods, works and services that you know governments contract for. So our community is across government officials who input and create the data, public procurement officers who do the same. We have data users from civil society and journalism. We have citizen monitors. 
We also work with businesses who are building new applications and services from the open data that is being produced and published and analyzed from government and civil society. And we also have public procurement agencies using the Microsoft BI tool, for example, around the world. And our open contracting data standard helps people link the data across different categories, going from budgeting to spending. And um, yeah, we feel really lucky to sort of have such a, a wide, global, diverse community of open contracting data users and advocates. Great. Thank you, Keisha. Uh, and lastly, Tim. Um, our main audience at GBIF is really the, the scientific community looking to answer questions that require evidence of where species have been recorded. So, for example, we've got a, a studies that detect newly or introduced invasive species, predicting how that species may spread or interact with other species in the area. Another research area could be relating to climate change, for example, and predicting how the, the geographic range of species will change under different climatic scenarios. There's also uh, studies relating to human health, where the species known to transmit disease-causing pathogens are considered, with the, the ultimate goal of better management and prevention of outbreak in, in human communities. But it's, it's the outputs of this scientific research that contribute to a better understanding of biodiversity and ultimately should lead into better decision-making around topics such as land use, conservation and trade in species that we're concerned with. Great. Thank you, Tim. Um, how do you all communicate with your known users? Uh, let's start with Lorene. Great. Yeah. So I would split the way we communicate with our users in two. First, on our platform. We are, after all, a wiki, which means that we really encourage dialogue around different issue areas and the activities that are happening on the platform. So you have discussion fora, we have, of course, tickets and lots of different ways for people to yeah, leave their justifications or ideas. Then there's, of course, also off-platform. We have the usual comms channels like socials, blog, targeted newsletters and guest lectures. But a really big channel for us as well is bespoke data dashboards. Increasingly, the attention span of our audiences is decreasing. So we have really lots of interesting data. But if you're not a data geek like us, you might not really want to spend all that much time looking through that data. So really engaging and um, dynamic infographics are the way to go. And so we work with a number of our partners who really understand these audiences and know what exactly they're interested in, which parts of the data sets that we have do they really want to know. And so we work with them to develop these dashboards to communicate the information that we have in an engaging way. Thank you. Uh, Keisha, would you like to go next? Yes. Um, so for us, standard development for the open contracting data standard itself is happening on GitHub, but we also have wider conversations around governance for OCDS that's run through a Google group of, of data users and publishers. We also have a dedicated help desk run through Open Contracting Partnership that supports publishers and users of standardized open contracting data. And we were just running the numbers for our annual report this year, found that we had directly supported over 200 partners in over 50 
50 countries through the data help desk. So that's really a main line of communication and support for, for our data users. And we do a lot of events linked to thematic issues, trying to connect the dots between procurement data and, you know, social outcomes around health services, a lot of COVID procurement, for example, improving education, creating smarter, sustainable cities, and finding those uh, thematic issue areas that our community is really interested in and passionate about. And we've also done a lot of trainings. Journalists across the world, in Kenya and Indonesia particularly, lately we've been helping them identify corruption red flags in procurement data. And as Lorraine also said, we use digital channels, blogs, websites, social media. And for us, that's a part of really meeting partners where they are. And we even have a special Twitter account dedicated to our our data community and our OCDS community. So we are really trying to find multiple channels to help communicate with known users. And at the end of the day, probably the closest communication comes from our team. We have program managers working within their own context in every region of the world. And they, you know, provide a lot of direct technical assistance. They get on calls and webinars and exchange emails with our data users and really helping support them along the way. Great. Thank you, Keisha. And Tim? Um, Similar to Keisha and Lorene. We're an open data infrastructure that anyone can access. So there's a large body of our users who we can only reach through typical social media channels, newsletters, bug reports on systems like GitHub, our help desk services, and and things like that. I'd say because many of the people who share data in the GBIF network are themselves also the consumers of it, over time we're, we're able to build some quite close relationships to our users. We're often involved in collaborative and co-funded projects. Uh, We participate in working groups for data standards, and we run our own events in the network. And that includes things like training and mentoring, capacity building programs. And over time, this close working arrangement helps our user community really get involved with shaping the priorities of the organization uh, and contributing to the design, and in some cases, even the actual operation of the infrastructure itself. Great. Thank you, Tim. What are the challenges with communicating with these users? Let's come to Lorene first. Right. So one of the biggest challenges that we have is finding the right balance between complexity and simplicity. So something as simple as what is a company can already get quite complicated quickly. Let me give you an example. If I say Coca-Cola, we all think of the one. But in reality, this is hundreds of entities. And sometimes these entities own each other, own parts of each other, merge, split up. And so it's incredibly difficult that if a user comes to our site and looks for Coca-Cola and finds so many different entities, how do we then communicate around that well when they just expect maybe to find just one company, right? So this is a, a challenge that we constantly face. And for some of our users, this complexity is really important. If you're looking at you know, tax evasion or something like that, it's incredibly important to see all the different entities because they are in different jurisdictions, they have different legal requirements and so on. But at the same time, there might be users who only want to find just Coca-Cola high level, let's say. Another example would be sector. So we all think it's very straightforward, but actually, if you look at the biggest classification of sectors that is used most, Air France, which uh, from the from the name you can tell quite quickly, well, that should be an airliner. They are actually considered a financial company because they are holding 
And so they don't actually provide any products or services themselves. And so these kinds of things can get really confusing for users who expect to find an airliner when they they actually are looking for Air France, right? So these are the types of things that we constantly work with and we're, we're constantly trying to find that right balance. The way that we deal with it is that we actually map all the complexities that we can and we try to then make it easier to navigate those complexities through our interface. But also we provide features where people can cluster and aggregate data so that you can actually remove some of that detail from the picture that is important to you. So that's one of the key issues or challenges that we work with on a daily basis. Thank you, Loreen. Uh, Keisha, can I come to you next? Yes. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we face is that we do have such global diverse community, which is amazing and very special, but it can be challenging to have a one-size-fits-all approach. So essentially, we don't. As I mentioned before, we're really committed to meeting people where they are, whether that means using different platforms for different communities. For example, we have a Facebook group for our Eastern Europe colleagues. We have a LinkedIn group for our US colleagues. And making our support offer modular so that data users at different capacity levels can use our tools and guidance. We also struggle with the balance of complexity and simplicity for our open data users and standard. And so we really try to create different tools that people can come in at their level of expertise or at the level of complexity that they need. Great. Thank you, Keisha. And Tim? Um, our story is quite similar to uh, Keisha's. We strive to be a global network, and that really does bring some challenges. There's the, uh, the typical logistical aspects, such as accommodating different languages, in as much material as we can and trying to, to manage discussion across different time zones. And those are fairly easy to overcome. But where it's becoming more difficult for us is to maintain the level of interaction that we've previously had as our communities expanding and the content and the data downloads and the citations of data are increasing. So a major challenge for us is really finding the appropriate interfaces with our global user community when we're really actually quite a, a small secretariat of around about 28 people in Copenhagen. So what can be hard to manage is the reality that the members of our network are at different levels of technical maturity. They have vastly different resources and they're all dealing with different local problems and, and expectations of the infrastructure. And it calls for a, a much more nuanced conversation. And that requires us to build working relationships over time and to really understand the needs of our community. And the way that we approach this is through our network of national nodes. And they, they act as the regional and thematic interface for our users. But that still does bring us the challenge that we need to find the mechanisms to bring together all this feedback and continue the conversation across all of these multiple layers. Great, thanks, Tim. What are the benefits of communicating with these users? Uh, let's go with Lorene first. Great, so one of the things that has been great for us in communicating with all these very diverse group of users is that we constantly learn more about the different use cases of the data. So 
to give you an example, we started out a project together with two partners, Clean Clothes Campaign and Fashion Revolution. And what we were able to do with the different data sets that they collected is get an understanding of the policies and commitments companies have on supply chain wages and then compare that to the actual wages being paid in apparel supply chains in their facilities, right? So we were able to make that direct link. We already knew that was going to be data that lots of different groups were interested in. But as one of our partners really pushed on was the use of that data for the workers themselves. And so through a dashboard that we were able to translate into, I believe we're up to 36 different languages right now, we were able to get this into the workers' hands. And that was just incredible to see that so many worker rights groups have have taken that data up and are using that now to advocate for better wages in supply chain facilities. And so it's really this kind of information that is really interesting because now we're getting them also coming back to us and asking for other types of data that could be useful for them. What other policies these companies have that they might like to know about? Maybe health and safety, uh, maybe something on uh, you know sexual harassment or something like that. So that they can use that in their advocacy. And so I think the more different user groups we work with, the more we learn about the different types of uses of the data. And that helps us to better design our platform to really get the information into everyone's hands. Thank you, Lorene. Um, Keisha, can we come to you next? Yes. Uh, first, I'll say, Lorene, that's an amazing story of reaching impact through open data for workers' rights. But in our community, ultimately, our goal is to help build a self-sustaining community that can achieve impact together for open contracting around the globe. And so we are also, you know, a small but mighty team of, of just under 30. We're spread out across the world, but we know that open contracting can only scale in a community and with others who are doing this within government and from civil society, academia, public and private sector. So for an example, just this week, we've heard from two data developers, one after our New York City Open Data Week event, and one came in this weekend through our Google group for open contracting data standard users. And in Zambia, someone is using official data to create their own tools to track procurement. And it kind of shows us just how relevant public procurement data is to people. And it's also part of how we like to make sure that our communication is bi-directional. We obviously send out updates to our community via newsletters, email, website, social media, let them know when we're launching new resources. But we are also always trying to make sure that we hear back from our community and gather feedback every step of the way, do individual consultations with key partners whenever we're making strategic shifts or developing new projects to support them. And our biggest communication campaign is really around our annual feedback survey. And we had a record number of responses in 2021, nearly 450. And we really do take in this feedback and adapt our support to meet the needs of our community members. And we break it down by region and by role. For example, we found that data publishers and users were most interested in prioritizing anti-corruption and transparency efforts, green procurement, infrastructure projects, and e-procurement system development. So the feedback and the communication that we have with our users is critical to help us shape our strategy, help us align our resources to bring open contracting to scale. Thank you, Keisha. Uh, and Tim, let's come to you next. So it's a, it's a similar story for us at GPIF. 
Um, the, the key benefits are really ones of making sure we remain as relevant as we can be and, and helping to grow um, the community and mature the network. So at GBIF, we really are mediators of other people's information. So what we, we aim for, or we try and aim for, is a, an inclusive environment that really promotes open discussion. So what one of the areas that has really benefited from this close collaboration and this open discussion relates to how we've adapted and uh, deployed our citation practice across the community. So we're, we're now at a stage where our user community really understands the importance of citing the data sources they've made use of. So they're no longer just downloading data and running away and doing their research, but they're really focusing and understanding why they should focus on citing the sources. And it's allowed us not only to provide metrics of how much data has been accessed, it's really allowing us to demonstrate how the data is being used, and we're able to track the resulting scientific outputs and the research papers that our consumers are publishing, making use of the data. And being able to showcase this, it really helps demonstrate the impact of the open data, and it really helps support the push for more open data um, and justify the, the considerable efforts spent in actually making the data open in, in the first place. Great. Thank you, Tim. Is there a sense of community with your existing users? Uh, Loreen, let's go with you first. So it's still small, but there is certainly a strong sense of community among our users. We have lots of volunteers who work together on different research projects, and they actually recruit others from their own network to join these kinds of projects as well. We have civil society organizations and university groups that are collaborating, they're sharing data, they collect data together and then analyze it. So there's a lot of interaction between the different users that we have. This of course doesn't happen on its own. When speaking to community members, our team raises awareness on the new projects that are happening, new members that have joined, and we try to facilitate as much as we can that connection between groups that we think have similar interests. But we also certainly make an effort to celebrate our community, whether that is through our social media or our newsletters or something along those lines. We give them as much as we can visibility and show the impact that they're having with their contributions. But of course, although we are an online platform, making it possible for people to experience the community in a non-virtual sense is really important as well. Before COVID, we regularly hosted live research events, something like pizza, drinks and socializing and looking up, you know, what the latest is on the companies you're interested in. And we really hope to do that again soon because we saw such a great uptake there. And that often led to little groups of volunteers starting their own kind of projects again, following these types of events. So, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to bringing that back. Thank you, Loreen. Uh, Keisha, let's come to you next. So we recently introduced a new metric to our strategic plan around community building and we measure belonging in our annual feedback survey. And it's really interesting. It's something that we internally as a team have started exploring, like how do we actually measure the sense of community that folks feel? And we brought that to our external community, to our wider global open contracting community and are hoping to see how the belonging score might change over time. So we've only done it 2020, 2021. We've had a decent average around seven, but also saw that 
between those years, as our community quickly grew, as our team grew, as people really realized the importance of public procurement throughout the pandemic, it was life and death between being able to procure vaccines and PPE and ventilators. So we really saw an an uptick and a growth in our community. And we also saw that sense of belonging dip a little bit and recognizing that as we move along, how do we keep that strong sense of belonging as more and more people join the the open consciousness community and more and more people are using this data, understanding its importance. Obviously, COVID has also affected that and we haven't been able to convene in person uh, for the past couple of years, but we're also hoping that soon we will be able to safely bring people together at the local level. We run trainings, we run workshops. We had a global conference that we ran pre-COVID that we hope to bring back in the next year or so. And we also participate in other communities that are adjacent, the wider open data community, folks who are generally in government reform, folks who are focused on you know, civic tech or public service improvement. So making sure that we're also participating in in those spaces. And along the way, we love to celebrate and highlight our champions as well. We have an annual campaign where we tell the stories of different folks across different roles, across different regions. We do a lot of impact storytelling as our partners, you know, create a change in their government, in their in their context. So, yeah, it, it, the, the belonging score has just been a really interesting way for us to actually try to see the change in, in the sense of community as we continue to grow. Great. Thank you, Keisha. Uh, and Tim, let's come to you. So uh, I think there's really two ways for us to look at this. Firstly, there's a growing community of people engaging with GBIF itself to build the infrastructure capabilities, provide mentoring and support, and of course, our our data sharing community. And that group will surely identify as as a GBIF community and are involved in building the the actual infrastructure and network. And and we sense that that's being acknowledged as we're now attracting some money from funding agencies that we can then distribute to our network in the form of grants for capacity building. But I, I think secondly, Uh, It's probably fair to say that there are many sub-communities within our user base that would identify around specific themes and topics, but perhaps less on GBIF itself. And these kind of topics could be a shared interest in a particular species group or a topic such as invasive species research. And those users will likely see GBIF more as a platform to use for data access and publishing rather than perhaps... Um, themselves feeling that they are part of the GBIF community. But I would say for those communities, being able to demonstrate the usefulness of GBIF as a platform is still super important for us. And being able to track their scientific outputs are really the reason that we exist. So serving that community and understanding their needs is, is really super important to us. Great. Thank you, Tim. Last question. Are you actively working towards broadening your existing user base? Let's go with Lorene first. Yes, so we absolutely are. And we've only started to scratch the surface of bringing in non-expert audiences to the ESG data space. What I mean with that is that because Wikirate is still quite early on in its development, at the moment, most of these users can really engage in the data production part of it. So gathering the information that we need to understand what companies' impacts are. 
But we are developing features and functionalities that will make it possible to start playing around with that information and to start to get a better sense of things like target tracking. So if we want to reach net zero by 2030, how is that going to look? Are companies on track? And that kind of thing will be able to bring in a whole new kind of non-expert user and engage a much broader community is what we hope and what we're planning for and what we're working toward so that they can really start to also be part of that, if you will, kind of understanding and really analyzing company impacts rather than just bringing in that first initial data that we need to have that is provided in lots of different sources today. So yeah, we are definitely working toward it. But as I said, we're still uh, in a quite an early stage. So yeah, keep an eye on what we're going to be doing. And uh, yeah, we hope to have you join our community soon. Great. Thanks, Lorraine. Um, Keisha, how about yourself? We are also always trying to expand and broaden our, our user base to different actors using procurement data, both horizontally and vertically across different topic areas. As I mentioned, we're seeing our community growing in interest around sustainability, climate change, healthcare, education, but also um, actors in, within the existing ecosystem, such as auditors, who too often still have to painfully sift through paper documents rather than standardized data. Um, so, we always try to do this with equity and accessibility in mind from the equity standpoint. This is something that we also have gathered from our annual feedback survey is that we could do a better job of achieving a gender balance in our user base and in our community and also helping partners use the data in a gender responsive way. And from an accessibility standpoint, we Again, always trying to meet our, our partners where they are and creating resources. Last year, we just launched a new uh, like learning page and it uses um, videos and sort of a, it's a multimedia approach for folks who are just trying to get on board with OCDS, understand what it is, see how they can publish and, and use the data. And uh, yeah, bringing in some folks who may not have this level of expertise or experience with procurement data, but are once again connecting the dots to its outcomes and its impact when it comes to public services, public goods, public infrastructure, and um, making sure that taxpayer money isn't being wasted. Great. Thanks, Keisha. And Tim, please go next. So GBIF's around 20 years old now, and we've been largely successful with fairly organic growth. We're now serving tens or hundreds of thousands of users monthly uh, and billions of records being downloaded daily. So we, we have data publishing activity from more than 200 countries at this point. So we've generally relied on word of mouth and participation in events such as uh, science conferences. And our focus has really been on trying to strengthen the national nodes of our network and helping build the case for more countries to participate and join GBIF. And what we see is the countries that participate in GBIF are the countries that are, are most active in, in open data. Our next strategic framework, which guides our work for the coming five years, um, that is the first time I'm aware that we are including a specific focus on strengthening the scientific and policy relevance of GBIF. And a key part of this work will involve uh, far more targeted approaches aimed at uh, specific communities with a goal of uh, demonstrating use for certain themes, such as uh, human health. 
Great. Thank you. Thank you all. That was really interesting. I think there's a lot that we can take away from discussions like this around best practice and how organizations overcome challenges in the future as they engage with data users. Loreen, Keisha and Tim, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Really appreciate your time and hope we can speak again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much, James. So thanks once again to my guests on this ODR podcast, Lorene Van Breen from Wikirate, Keisha Boenger from the Open Contracting Partnership, and Tim Robertson from GBIF. One thing I think that we can all take away from it is the importance of an engaged community in making open data initiatives successful. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to find out more about anything you've heard in this episode, please do visit the odi.org and have a look around the different areas of the website for help and insight on open data best use and best practice. I'm James Madison, and this has been a podcast by the ODI. Thanks for listening and hope to speak to you again soon.